Greetings, Grapple fans, and welcome to the second episode of the second series of Rerun the Rivalry, the December special in which myself, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, go through every series of matches that over the course of a number of months, or even years, define the two or more wrestlers involved in this series of battles. So it's chapter two of Brian Danielson against Nigel McGuinness. We saw them wrestling for both titles under pure rules at the previous show, Weekend of Champions Night 2. Simon, where are we? When are we? And what are the stipulations for this match? We are at an event called Generation Now, taking place on the 29th of July 2006, exactly three months to the day of our previous chapter. We are fighting under regular rules, and I believe it is solely for the Ring of Honor World Championship. Yep, Danielson has everything to lose and nothing to gain, I guess, I suppose. And McGuinness was the one that won the previous match, so why should he have to put his pure title on the line when he's already successfully defended it? Yeah. Whereas Danielson only held on to his belt through the fact that the world title doesn't change hands on count-out like the pure title does. So going into this one, it is that sense of McGuinness is in full confidence and Danielson's going in with something to prove. He's a bit angry after what happened last time. Yeah. The general sense of the match, especially in that late stage, was that Danielson was in control. And it was ultimately his own mistake, really, in diving over the top rope to the outside and McGuinness putting a chair up and the referee not really catching it that led to McGuinness being able to get into the ring before he could for the 20 count. Do you think, obviously, there's an element of him being baited and him being angry at the fact he was baited? Oh, yeah, McGuinness had totally got into his head at that point. I mean, he'd thrown McGuinness into the crowd and it was pretty obvious that McGuinness was going to get, probably going to get counted out in that moment anyway, until Danielson then did the follow-up dive to the outside. And because McGuinness didn't really get hit by it as the story that they were telling, the fall was awkward enough. I suppose as McGuinness as a responsible wrestler, he had to try and save him some way, but also mm-hmm. try to not make it look like he would have been as affected by it as Danielson was. It's a very awkward way to do it. Yeah. And also, this was not a security-covered situation. There were bodies around the place as well in that crowd. Was it just the folding chairs they had? I swear I saw some solid back ones as well in that. I can't exactly uh, remember. uh, You might be mixing that up with the next event, possibly. Maybe. But they didn't didn't collapse very easily, those chairs, is my point. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it was the basic fold-open plastic chairs. Yeah. I suppose because they're plastic and they're not metal, maybe the, like, what's the swing, the hinge motion? Yeah. To fold it up or fold it down, maybe it's a bit more awkward over time with wear and tear. Whereas with the metal chairs, it's usually a bit smoother, I would have thought. True, although they're more prone to shattering, aren't they, if they're plastic? And then you've got sharp bits everywhere, so. Basically, don't hit someone with a chair. (laughs) Kids, don't try this at home. As if children listen to this. <laughs> I mean, not children physically. <laughs> uh, hey, hey, people, I'm in a glass house here. I shouldn't be throwing stones. Well, stone throwing isn't legal in this match. <laughs> I'm trying, that was a, uh, I'm usually good at the links. I couldn't with that one. I will face you next on a David versus Goliath stipulation. Literal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's like TNA's Feast or Fire. There's two boxes. One's filled with tons of steroids and the other's filled with a slingshot. The, the big guy going, can I just make a point? This is David v. Goliath. Now that implies that Goliath is at an advantage. But the stipulations of this match are that he can throw stones at me and I can't. Where's the disadvantage here? 
<laughs> yeah, but you're massive. That's not enough. <laughs> I'm thinking of other biblical stipulations you could have now. Oh, well, I mean, hair versus hair match with Samson. Yeah, let's see. Pillar of salt. If you took the concrete out of the 2004 glass crypts with the Dudleys and the Undertaker and replaced it with salt, that's kind of similar. One point that you didn't bring up, Simon, that I thought would be a a good little minor point to point out, uh, me to praise an element of Gabe Sapolsky's booking that I always enjoy within Ring of Honor, Mm. is that this is taking place at the exact same venue that the previous match had taken place in as well. Of course, that was something Gabe liked to do with Ring of Honor. There was usually a loop of venues that they performed in. And Gabe would try to make a continuum from one show to the other that led in. So it might be repeat matches. It might be the blow-off match to something that was started in the previous match. So, like, uh, when they went to Chicago Ridge, I think it was the first time when CM Punk and Colt Cabana beat the Briscoe brothers for the tag titles. Also on the card, BJ Whitmer beat A Steel, hit him with a chair, and then A Steel got the revenge on BJ Whitmer at the end of the show because at the time the Second City Saints were in a feud with the prophecy, but it was a prophecy without Christopher Daniels at that point, so it was a two on three feud. And then when they did the blow off to that feud when they returned to Chicago three months later, it was CM Punk and A Steel teaming up against BJ Whitmer and Dan Math. And the finish of the match was A Steel hitting a tombstone on BJ Whitmer on the chairs. Oh, Survivor Series 91. Did. But a much bigger risk, and BJ Whitmer didn't then try to get A Steel fired. I mean, other people tried to do that to A Steel in the future, but not for that. A <laughs> Steel got A Steel fired. <laughs> I can't remember off the top of my head a lot of these sort of continuing storylines built around specific venue. I think also with Danielson's reign, they might also bunch up those wrestlers because like during this time as ring of honor world champion he has issues with roderick strong he has issues with colt banner he has issues with nigel mcginnis he has samoa issues joe. with samoa joe he has issues with delirious and i think how you can't understand the man <laughs> danielson at this point was very easy to rile <laughs> but, <laughs> but sapolsky would try to book around the same venues for each of those ones so if you're someone that's just come to the, the new wrestling show and you're not an avid ROH bot, but you like the show enough to go to the next one three months later, you're not at a complete loss for all the three months worth of storylines that have happened in between. Okay. You get to enjoy some sort of follow-up from what had happened at that venue the previous time. Yeah. It, it does strike me as a bit New Japan-y as well, but that's sort of for a different reason because they have revered venues like Kurikan Hall uh, and the Tokyo Dome for example, where um, at least the English commentators, I'm assuming the Japanese ones do it as well, uh, where they mention what the certain records of Sayo Kada versus Tanahashi is like at the Tokyo Dome specifically. Of course, harking back to our previous series of Rerun the Rivalry there. Yes. One of the reasons that we like to do this is to see if you can notice elements of the story that these participants use over the series of matches to do something different and something interesting which is why we've said that maybe it'll be harder to do interesting stuff with wwe shows because they're more about the wrestlers themselves and their move sets and it's not really not deep lore they might do it in the finish but stuff in the middle or the beginning of the match they might be less inclined to do clever little twists on that might i might be wrong there Mm. But it was more that they had their match that they would do. That's not a slight against, like, 
the WWE for its methodology. I wouldn't be surprised if there was, like if you watch Stone Cold Steve Austin against Bret Hart, there wasn't a lot of callbacks to their Survivor Series match in their WrestleMania 13 match. Or yeah. So just that or, or the Rock Austin. I don't think it will be a lot of Austin hitting something at WrestleMania 15 and then the Rock finding a counter to that at WrestleMania 17. Yeah. But I think you will get more of that in this show. So in these promotions, maybe because they reward more deeper viewing, more, and maybe they have a higher artistic ambition and freedom given to them within these matches to go that way. Yeah, that's true. I don't think they're being road agented to death or being asked to fit within a specific system and style, which is criticism that's often been levied at WWE slash F. An example of that to start off with is Nigel McGuinness tries to go to what worked for him the last time, which is targeting Danielson's arm. Danielson, in return, goes after his ankles at the start. But Danielson knows that's what's going to happen, so uh, he's a bit more defensive, and ultimately his arm isn't left dangling on a string like it was <laughs> in their first match. And that also means that whilst in the first match, when he went for the surfboard hold on McGuinness, he wasn't able to apply it, and so he just stomped on McGuinness's knees because he couldn't do the full surfboard. Yeah. In this one, his arm is strong enough that he can at least try to do it, although he does also get the knee dig in just to be a bit of a dick. Wow. <laughs> to start off with. But... What is also not significant, but I thought was notable, is it's one of the times where you get to appreciate just the size difference between the two of them. Because the surfboard is a hard hold to apply fully, especially if you're at a weight and size disadvantage. And as a result of that, Mm. he can't get McGuinness fully up in the air for the hold. So instead he has to accept, I suppose, be settled with... The kneeling one, yeah. In the previous match... They did obviously allude to the size difference, but due to his technical ability, it was never really a factor. It was, as you say, Nigel taking away his arm that uh, handicapped him so much, I suppose, as the the size and weight advantage. So it's interesting to see that they're playing up on that a little bit here. Yeah, I think that's also... Two factors to that. One is that for the majority of wrestlers in Ring of Honor, Danielson is not at too much of a size disadvantage to them, really. He's not at a size disadvantage to Roderick Strong or Austin Aries or Delirious <clears throat> or Alex Shelley or any of those guys. There's only a few. There's Samoa Joe. Samoa Joe's not the tallest guy in the world. There's Nigel. There's Claudio Castagnoli. I think Brent Albright was there at the time. But what they've really done and what how they've really booked him at this point is to say that he is the best wrestler in the world. And yeah. so there is no, ultimately, not much of a height disadvantage. Or the height disadvantage is offset by his ability advantage over everyone else in the promotion. Yeah. Let's also be fair as well. It's not like, it's one of those things where Nigel McGuinness is like a giant within Ring of Honor. But if he'd been in the WWE at the time, he wouldn't have stood out necessarily. Like Cesaro did. Like Gunther now does in the WWE compared to his run in the indie scene. Not, not just because he slimmed out. I think also, what is key going into this as well is the Whilst the story of the first match was that Nigel was inferior to Danielson in the ring and he won like he did in most of his pure title matches by working around the rules to his advantage. With the strikes and the count out, yeah. Yeah, the count out wins and using of the rope breaks. Yeah, like you say, taking advantage of the closed fist rule to lose Danielson a rope break. They also have always made it clear that McGuinness is still a fantastic 
Matt Wrestler, and maybe if he pushed himself to that limit, he would finally realise it almost in himself and get to that next step up. With this match, what McGuinness has going in as a big mental advantage over Danielson is that he has beaten him. Yeah. And there's pretty much no one on the roster who has a singles victory over Danielson at this point. I think Kent has beaten him in a tag team match. I don't know if by this point Delirious has scored a pin on him in an elimination match, but that's like the sub-storyline going on for Danielson with Delirious. That's sort of the payoff for that one eventually. Mm. But McGuinness's confidence going into this, and as we say, his lack of anything to worry about, he's not defending anything, allows him to be looser. And also, I think his confidence builds over the course of the match as it goes on. And that the story of this match is that Danielson is the one that has to do something, un- not necessarily underhanded, but sneaky, yes. in order to get the victory over McGuinness. And so this is one of those examples that, because we so obsess online in the discussions about someone losing a match or whatever. This is one of those ones, and that story will continue over the course of this series of matches, where a tainted win doesn't do nearly as much for your character and your positioning on the card as a noble loss. Yeah. Because Danielson has so many ways of winning matches. And that's one of the clever ways that they booked him during this time. He has the cross-faced chicken wing. He has the cattle mutilation. He has the series of elbows. But another thing that they've really built up throughout the course of uh, his title reign is that he is the master of the small package. Again, it's like that whole thing that was an online discourse recently that Jim Ross said uh, the DDT should be a finishing move. Yeah. And it's barely anything else. It's like any move can be a finishing move if you book it well enough and the wrestlers themselves execute it well enough paul Heyman said it best when he was talking about you could give like mark henry a headlock and you could make it it's it's how you present it everyone was making fun of it at first online but i absolutely got where they were going with chris masters and the master lock and then for the rest of his run when he was a baby face or in in a be put in a royal rumble or something him getting someone in the full nelson was a big deal at that point like it got a pop from the crowd or Another example, I remember when Billy Kidman accidentally knocked out, I think it was Chavo Guerrero with a shooting star press. They actually built that into the storyline and had it be that the shooting star press was just this deadly move. He then did it to Paul London in their match and Paul London did a stretcher job off of it. And then for the rest of the time that they bothered to book Billy Kidman, every time he started climbing to the ropes, it was getting a reaction from the crowd because they knew what lay into each of those things. Yeah. So anytime Danielson now gets a small package, it's a believable finish. It's the antithesis of Undertaker's first tombstone at WrestleMania. So going into this match, there's that sense that McGuinness has something over Danielson that others have. They're really building up Nigel as one of Danielson's great rivals. And I suppose it's because Nigel has that background in the similar area that was Danielson's specialty with the British trained Matt Wrestling. Yeah. So McGuinness can match him closer in these encounters and in these melees than anyone else on the roster can realistically do. And he has, as we've said before, the size and the strength advantage over Danielson. So maybe he is that close arrival to Danielson that Danielson can't just out-technical wrestle him. Like, that's an area that McGuinness, more than anyone, can match him at. And comfortably lives in that world as well. Yeah. And so Nigel, at various points in the match, also declares himself the best in the world and also does the I have till five referee. He does it first in this match, which is very telling. 
So again, he's trying to get into Danielson's head, which Danielson obviously does to everyone in his matches. But he's sort of saying, I can do everything you can do. And I hit, I can hit harder than you. And I'm, and I'm bigger than you. And as we said, I've got nothing to lose. So Danielson is under that pressure throughout the match. And whilst they're, again, both working as heels, this is definitely more that McGuinness is the subtle face if anyone's the subtle face in this match, whereas Danielson was more towards the subtle face in the previous match. Yeah. Which is a really good testament to how they elicited the exact response they wanted in the first match. Obviously, with Ring of Honor liking nice, clean finishes as well. Because the the bullshit chance that rained down at the end of the first match basically is how they set the table for this match and also why i figured that even though it's being booked as a title unification match which in theory should be the biggest kind of match you can almost do yeah in especially in a promotion like ring of honor which emphasizes the importance of the in-ring matches and with pure wrestling their style of matches that they didn't book it as the finish as the final match but in this one they do book it as the final match on the card and as we said this area of america was sort of Nigel's home ground. Right. So the crowd probably had more of an awareness of McGuinness there than they might have in other places, which again maybe is why the reasoning behind Gabe Spolsky picked this venue as the place where they booked their first two matches. And obviously then where they book his third match is another thought in that process as well. <laughs> but yeah, but, but it's not like Nigel doesn't entirely avoid the heelish stuff as well during this match. Like, in the previous match where it was that he did a punch to Danielson to egg him on into using a closed fist in front of the ref and losing a rope break. Obviously, that's not a factor in this one. But this time, Nigel sneaks in a headbutt to Danielson when the referee's trying to separate them. And that is a continuing storyline thread throughout their rivalry going forward. Yeah. He does go back to his original gimmick, I suppose, when he came to Ring of Honor, which was the world of sport, Johnny Saint, Trixiness. But again, Danielson, for the most part, is still a little bit better on him than the, at the map. But it's, again, Nigel is now raising raising his game yeah. to meet Danielson's. And also, because he needs a, a pinfall or a submission victory to get the title, can't rely on the count-out wins or tricking Danielson into a potential disqualification mm. like he did in the previous match, where... There was the misunderstanding until the end that a pure rules win by DQ or countout won't win him the world title. He doesn't realise that until the end of the match. Yeah, Or he does, but he knows that he can bait him into a rematch where he doesn't have to put his pure title on the, on the line. And also, just he's desperate for the match to be over at that point because he's in so much trouble. Yeah, sprawled amongst a bunch of chairs. Whereas in this one, Danielson is desperate to end the match because he's in so much trouble. And so he goes to the tricksiness of crawling under the ring. Again, using the outside of the ring as an important battleground for these two that they rarely go to because they're so map-based focused. So Mm. it's a sign that like things have degenerated between them. They take it to the outside. Yeah, like when Nigel in the previous match chokes Brian with the table, that was a sign of, oh, things have kicked up a gear. I think all of the rope breaks have been used by the point they start spilling outside as well in the first match. Yeah. So it's like, okay, all the technical stuff's gone. Your ultimate defense against it has gone. Now we can take things up a notch. But as we said, like towards the end is when Nigel now starts to rally and Nigel gets the second win. Whilst Danielson's able to hit like a top rope superplex on him, he follows it up with a with a flying headbutt, which I assume is a bit of a dynamite kid double tribute. Yep. But McGuinness is able to get his knees up for that. And then, you know, it's the forearm off. And then Nigel starts to hit his wicked hard lariats. And this is gradual change in McGuinness. Like, McGuinness changed up his style a couple of times during his run in Ring of Honor. Like I said, he was first the Trixie World of Sport guy. 
Then he became the crafty heels, chicken shit heel, using some of the world of sports stuff, but in general just being a bit of a... Arsehole. Now he's moving much more towards actually using his size and just bludgeoning his opponent with lariats. It became a running gag over time, and we might see it, might understand it ourselves as matches go on, how much McGuinness started to rely on lariats as his main weapon, I suppose. You can't exactly blame him looking at him, though, can you? <laughs> and, of course, in this one, we get McGuinness hitting the Tower of London, which was how he won the Ring of Honor Pure Championship, but Danielson gets to the ropes. I don't... Because Danielson did go to the ropes a few times in this uh, exchange. I don't know if they would have booked it. I can't remember. I didn't make a note of it, so maybe they didn't. But it would have been clever if, throughout the match, Danielson had gone to the ropes three times. And then when he went to the ropes to the Tower of London, they could have had it... If it had been under pure rules, McGuinness would have... It wouldn't have mattered. Yeah, yeah. McGuinness would have won the match there. No, I didn't track the rope breaks in this one either. But that, that would have been a nice little uh, tip of the cap. But yeah, now he's just getting into intense flurries at the end, trading of forearms, trading of elbows, you know, again, meeting Danielson with his own moves. Then the head butt off. <sighs> we'll talk more about that in future ones, I think. Yeah. Yeah, they're just battling in the ropes. And just McGuinness is completely controlling Danielson at this point until Danielson, so Danielson just is desperate to finish it. and Because Danielson can't rely on a count-out win or anything. How does he use the outside of the ring to his advantage? Crawls under the ring, ends up on the other side of the ring. So God knows how many tables and chairs and kendo sticks is my understanding of how wrestling rings work. <laughs> oh, and um, Finley's son as well, don't forget. Yep, the Ultimate Warrior was also there, yeah. just in case. Boogeyman's probably been there a couple of times. He's playing gin rummy under those under the ring with Hornswoggle. Hornswoggle took a PSP or a DS most more often than not. Danielson's going under the ring is the equivalent of that chase scene in the, the Pillow Fort episode of Community. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Quick, we'll cut him off from the Armenian district. <laughs> oh no, the Pride Parade. Hey, they had the permit. They... <laughs> <laughs> So then he crawls out under the other ring, and then it's the most underhanded way that Danielson, the most sneaky way Danielson can win the match. He can't overwhelm him, he can't submit him, he can't knock him out. He just ties him up in a pretzel with his small package and wins the match. And obviously, people calling him Mr. Small Package was not intended as a compliment to his abilities with an inside cradle. Yeah. It had so peak her angle, like in his early days, of like, what? <laughs> But it's a wonderful way how they book Danielson throughout it. I mean, the only other person that similarly gets booked like this, I suppose, is Volta slash Gunther. And I'm amazed that even in the WWE, they allow it on the main roster. And I think this was even when Vince was in charge, that he has multiple ways of winning matches. Mm. There is no one set way. But they never have it that Walter or Gunther goes for like a roll-up or a small package. Again, maybe it's because he's so physically imposing, although less so in the WWE ring, that he would never ultimately need that. Yeah. And also because the, the story of Walter Gunther matches is that he's always overwhelmed his opponents, and then when they come back, then he's just trying to snuff them out with just one fatal blow, be it a lariat or a power bomb or a top rope splash or whatever. Whereas with this one, Danielson, because he knows he hasn't overwhelmed him with his technical abilities, he knows the only thing he can do then is the sneaky stuff, which his smaller stature can do. It's very, It's a very Masanobu Fushi kind of way of winning and Fushi was a huge inspiration for Danielson around this time yeah and as we said if you go with another like physical equal to McGuinness when he had that match against Sheamus that we love so much when we watched it the second time we were just like oh my god this is just a Masanobu Fushi tribute <laughs> <laughs> he's been watching tapes again <laughs> yeah I would actually put this like a step below the previous match but still like 
three and three quarters to four stars for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same ballpark. Very good, but again with match one, the finish to this sort of setting something up because we've used this phrase before oh someone's survived McGuinness not defeated him it's not quite on that level but he's not defeated him he's had to outsmart him there needs to be a complete no questions asked victor in this rivalry and that feeds into our next match which will be the next episode that you'll have coming up simon where are we when is it and what are the stipulations to make this one override the issues that we've had in these previous two encounters we are at the liverpool olympia Funnily enough, in Liverpool, England, uh, we are looking at the 12th of August, 2006. So only two weeks later. Yeah. One hell of a recovery period was needed. We are fighting under pure rules, but the world title and the pure title are both on the line, and the world titles can change hands the same way that the pure title can, i.e. on countouts or disqualifications. So unlike the previous match, whoever wins, wins the whole pot. No questions asked. And if there's a double disqualification, a double countout, any of those things, the match will be restarted. There must be a winner. <laughs> and that winner will unify the titles. So they better book this last on the card, is what I'm saying. <laughs> but until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with how you book a champion on a card, how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm set on a Simon Cross free. Free for the number of seconds it took for Danielson to outsmart Minginis in this match. My name's Lorcan Munnell. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L. A-N for the A-N at the start of Ankle, which Danielson targeted at the start of the match, but wasn't able to do much with it. As my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd, if you're putting at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtwisepod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something, and I hope you'll stay with us as we continue to rerun the rivals. Maybe we'll come back!